Ronaldo is ready. Strikes. The first round of the knockout stage is complete, and we are looking forward to what will be some very exciting matchups in the quarterfinals of the FIFA World Cup. Welcome back to Crossing Broad FC. I'm Russ Joy at Joy on Broad, joined as always by the fantastic, the man of the world, the ever-worldly, the non-homebody, get out there and grab life by the cojones. That's Phil Kaidel. You can find him on Twitter at Phil Kaidel. That's K-E-I-D-E-L. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel. Phil! Phil! World Cup! We are getting to the quarterfinals, and life is good. we got to recap these other games and get into some potentially uh, memorable matchups. But how are you feeling after uh, going through a bunch of shootouts? Since you're intentionally lying about me and describing me incorrectly, uh, I'm also very thin and devastatingly handsome. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed this past round of matches a lot more than I thought I would. Honestly, I felt as though some of these matches were going to not deliver and, you know, Things like Japan still being in the draw made me unhappy. Well, guess what? That was one of the best matches of the round. Uh, things like Russia still being in the draw because Spain was going to just tap the ball around and score at will. That turned out to be not accurate either. Uh, these are great matches to go over. We will. And then we'll talk some more about the quarterfinals, which are even tastier. Yeah, uh, it's funny that you bring up Japan, too, because we had said that what Japan had done in, in their final matchup against Poland should have immediately disqualified them. The fact that they were just so nonchalantly passing the ball around and were making no attempt to go forward and play. They end up giving an absolute scare to Belgium. We'll get to that match in a second. Uh, let's start off with probably the, the two biggest matchups. I think when we looked at the bracket, when we talked about it in the last show, there was a potential for a Messi-Ronaldo quarterfinal, and we both picked against that, but we said that it would have been interesting to see it play out. Well, uh, things went according to form. France 4, Argentina 3. Uh, you pointed out that there was a Twitter account that was affiliated with the Falkland Islands that tweeted, don't cry for 3, Argentina. That's that's lovely. I couldn't pass that up. I had to put that on. But this, to me, was a match that there were, there were two things, I guess, that were standout. And one is the lineup, which I want to get into. But the other is just Kylian Mbappe did whatever he wanted whenever he wanted and broke this match open immediately for France. And going forward in this World Cup, we knew that, M that Mbappe was a great young talent. There were um, uh, plenty of headlines off the field of him donating his entire bonus for the World Cup to charity. I believe it's going to students who are in uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, and I believe also for kids with special needs. So, you know, whereas the English media had kind of uh, honed in on, what was it, Raheem Sterling's calf tattoo that had a gun on it that was in honor of his his father who was shot and killed and and they the english media ran with that in all kinds of different directions some deplorable ways and then some to highlight that appropriately you know mbappe is making headlines for all the right reasons so was uh the way that mbappe is the way that mbappe took this game over was that surprising to you in any way was there anybody else for france that stood out to you nearly as much as he did to me well, as a Man City fan, I've seen Mbappe do this before. He did it with Monaco, and he basically put City out of the Champions League a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was only like 18 or 17 when he did it. Now he's 19. And while we're sitting here uh, throwing laurels at the guy, which is the right thing to do, they made the point to him after he scored this brace 
in this match that the only other person who had done that at the age of 19 was Pele. And Mbappe's immediate response was, well, that guy's on another level for me, so let's get our priorities straight here and, and keep everything in perspective. That's a really mature answer for a 19-year-old who is as good at this game as Mbappe is. Um, the thing that struck me about this match was we already knew that Argentina might be athletically uh, undergunned here, not have enough to keep up. But the thing that shocked me was Mbappe ran past people at will. And it's so rare to see people have not just that speed, a little bit like Sadio Mane, where they just go so fast and then they still have the vision and the touch and the clinical finishing on the other side of it. Uh, that's what struck me with Mbappe in this match. He really did whatever he wanted. And of course, he created a penalty early in the match uh, that uh, put France ahead. So this scoreline, this 4-3, was fairly deceiving, I think. Um, France was really in control of the match through the last quarter of it. And, of course, Sergio Aguero scores toward the end uh, to basically put lipstick on a pig for Argentina. Um, but, yeah, no Mbappe was special. There's no getting around it. The Mbappe move that set up the early penalty call, the burst that he had and the, the distance that he went reminded me, and I think I tweeted it out right like immediately, it reminded me of uh, watching Larry Fitzgerald catch a, uh, a touchdown, I think on a slant route and run 55 yards against the Steelers in Super Bowl 43. I, I just couldn't remember a time where I saw a guy get into open space and then just flat out burn it the didn't way have, that he did. I didn't tweet this, but it really had some Usain Bolt in it too, where you know he's running along with whoever's with him, and then there's another gear that he has that the other athlete doesn't have, and Mbappe's gone. Yep. And it's fun to watch. There's no question about it. So the other, the other thing, obviously, is the thing that we've been kind of harping on for a while and you and I knew immediately that this was not going to go well for Argentina when we watched the lineup they rolled out uh, once again Sampioli did put Di Maria in the starting lineup which made sense but the thing that I thought worked so well for them in their previous matchup was uh, putting Gonzalo Higuain in as the holding striker and it did not happen in this match Higuain as a matter of fact didn't see the field until was it the very the very end? No, he didn't see it at all. He, he didn't even make it in as a substitute. So Iguain, after a very strong performance uh, in a match that ended up putting them through the knockout phase, doesn't see the field. They start Pavone on on the right flank. Benega's in, which made sense. Mascherano, once again, they had as, as a holding deep-lying midfielder, which made no sense. It made no sense the entire tournament. He was constantly, consistently burned, uh, abused, taken advantage of. It was It was a a masterclass in how to ruin the reputation of, of uh, Javier Mascherano. And then Perez, like Perez, once again, like he's in, doesn't doesn't do a whole lot for your team. Uh, like I said, going into the match, Benega made plenty of sense to be a deep-lying midfielder if that's what you so chose. But, you know, we, we're looking at something here where late in this game, you're just kind of left wondering what Paolo Dybala did. Is he having an affair? Like, does Sampioli have a daughter? Is he having an affair with Sampioli's daughter? Like, what happened off the field that led to a guy that everybody thought was going to be the new age Argentine player, the guy that Messi would hand off the torch to at the end of this World Cup? What in the world did he do to only earn 22 minutes this entire World Cup? And further, a guy with as much international experience, and again, somebody who played such a good match uh, in the final uh, match day three of the group stage, what the heck did Iguain do to also... Um, you know, earn so few minutes. I just, I don't know if we're ever going to understand what Sampioli was thinking in this World Cup. Well, as for Dybala, you could say that it's an aversion to playing young players. Igain's 30, so that's not going to work. That uh, excuse won't wash. 
Um, but yeah, if you stick with a player like Mascherano, the way Sampaoli did, you could argue that he was just afraid to put his fate in the hands of a 24-year-old striker. Um, but after the way they played the first three matches in the group stage, I don't think Sampaoli had that much to lose. And we talked about this. He needed to be far more attacking. The funny thing is, we both thought this was sort of a drab, defensive-minded lineup that Argentina put out. They still scored three times. Now, maybe that says more about France than it does about Argentina. But I would love to see what they could have done if they really had gone hell-bent for leather and tried to score five or six. Yep. And ultimately, I think this match played out pretty much exactly how we thought it was going to. Um, There was just maybe the ever so slightest thought that uh, perhaps Argentina would be able to get out to an early lead and maybe that would put France on their heels. But, you know, France was a team that I came into this World Cup kind of harping against saying I didn't know if they were going to be able to put it together. And and they certainly have done so. And they've allowed their elite talent to shine. Um, You look at the at the score line. You know, we know that Mbappe had a had a great game, had two goals. And uh, Antoine Griezmann, who, by the way, early in the World Cup, you know, he had his La Decision that he had on Spanish TV to uh, kind of mirror, I guess, LeBron James's decision. A 45-minute, I, I believe, video where he, you know, eventually announced that he was going to be staying at Atletico Madrid. You know, there's a guy who, once again, he stepped up in a big moment. And, you know, between Mbappe, Griezmann, uh, they accounted for three. And then Pavard. Pavard had maybe the best goal of the tournament so far, uh, coming off the right side of the box going far post off a of volley on a pure laser. I mean, it was absolutely on a rope. France looks great, and it's a shame, you know, as we look forward here. Um, you know, Messi, probably his last World Cup, I would assume, doesn't factor into the uh, into the, the scoreline. Di Maria with a goal, Mercado with a goal, Aguero, who came in as a late substitute, uh, scores in the 93rd minute. But, you know, Messi, I, I can't fault him for it. As much as... It would give me great pleasure, I guess, as a Real Madrid supporter to really stick it to him. I don't think he was ever put in a position to be successful in this World Cup. It'll lead to Sampioli's dismissal. And ultimately, I think it's going to be a black mark on on Argentina going, you know, as we look back on this World Cup. It was a, a, a tournament of missed opportunities for them. Yeah, all true. But now I hate to say it, but I think it's inevitable that Messi will come back. You think in so? 2022. Yeah. I really do. I mean, he might be somebody at that point who can only play half an hour, but, you know, half an hour of him might be better than what they have. It's four years down the line. We'll see what happens. Yeah, and we'll see if Dybala even factors in at that point. That, I think, is going to be the the most interesting part of this for Argentina going forward is as you're looking for a manager and you're trying to figure out, you know, how do you turn the page from guys like Di Maria and Higuain and even, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, Messi, like Mascherano. As you look forward, you've got to find somebody who's going to be able to mine the best talent in Argentina and get them on the national team stage. But you you have to figure out a way to get Paulo Dybala in. He's just, frankly, he's too good to have only played 22 minutes on a World Cup. Uh, let's move off this. The other half of the uh, the matchup that wasn't between Messi and Ronaldo, of course, is Uruguay-Portugal. Uruguay won that match 2-1. And there, there were, I guess, a few things here that were strange. Um... Ronaldo didn't get much off. You pointed out uh, in our show sheet that he had only 49 touches in the match, 25 attempted passes, uh, 21 of them, 21 completed passes, and it was the fewest of anybody, any outfield player in this match um, who played the entire match. And, you know, he got bottled up. Uruguay was able to focus in on him, and credit to them. Uh, they did a, a fantastic job of shutting him down. Cavani, on the other hand, Cavani was out of his mind goes out with a 
I believe it was a cramp right in the uh, the left calf, and the the match changed once Cavani went out, but it was never changed enough where it felt like Portugal was going to be able to to get back into it. Well, unfortunately, uh, Cavani is reported to be likely out of this quarterfinal against France. It's fortunate for France. It's very unfortunate for Uruguay. Um, we've talked about Cavani before, and uh, I swore up and down. It's absolutely true. Three, four years ago, when he was deemed to be generally available, I really wanted Manchester City to take him because on his day, he's unplayable, and he, he gets into spaces in the box, and he is fearless, and he makes things happen. Uh, he essentially won this match for when Uruguay, you say in un- my opinion. Unplayable. You mean he's like undefendable? Undefendable. Like okay. It, and that's that's one of these words like cleave that has uh, you know opposite meanings depending on how you use them. Yes, I think that he's very hard to defend and very hard to deal with. I'm not suggesting that you can't play him or put him on the pitch. He's really good, um, and he scored twice in this match. And he's taken his national team to a World Cup quarterfinal. Um, and now they're really going to have to just try to batten the hatches down against France. The problem, uh, as we talked about before we went on, Uruguay can't just focus on one player like they did against Portugal. It was basically stop CR7, we stop Portugal, and we go on. France has three or four guys, as we just talked about a moment ago, who can kill you all by themselves. And so, yeah, I don't expect Uruguay to do much going forward in this match against France. They will probably try to get it to a penalty kick situation if they can, but I don't think that's a winning formula. I think France wins this match. It is rough because it's a left calf injury. And we know that, you know, so much of your, your speed and your burst is initiated in your calf. And the likelihood of him starting this match is low. So then do you roll the, roll the dice if, if you're down a goal or if you're looking for one to, uh, to tie it up? Or if it's a tied match and you're looking to try to get the thing over uh, without extra time? Do you roll the dice on 10 minutes of Cavani and hope that it works out? Knowing that at, if it ends up going to extra time, you can use your fourth substitute to take him out. And if I'm Uruguay, I have to think about it. I mean, I think... This is going to be unlike James Rodriguez for Colombia, where I don't see a way that Cavani doesn't end up on the bench. He won't be at 100%. He might not even be at 75%. But Cavani plays in, you know, plays for PSG. He's used to playing against uh, a lot of top-tier talent in France. He knows how some of these guys are going to play. Um, he's, you know, I, I think when I look at what Cavani's done over the last few years, you know, when, when Zlatan left PSG, there was a real question about, did PSG let the right guy go? And would Cavani be able to pick up where Ibrahimovic had left off? And and it was a pretty resounding yes. And he's done a great job at the club level. And now to see him be able to convert and really single-handedly, in a sense, put his team through. The second goal that he had, falling away, hitting with the inside of his right foot to the far post uh, in, uh, in full stride, was one of the more remarkable goals I think we've seen in this World Cup. It was a clinical finish, and it was something that, you know, a guy who is really feeling himself and and is uh you know in top form is going to be able to net and it, it was it was a great thing to see very interesting match i do hate to say it though one of the knocks on cavani has been health and now here he is doubtful to start who knows if he even makes the substitutes bench um you can't fault him i mean his effort was great but yeah it's going to be a really hard go for them against france in this next round flip side of that of course is i'm i'm sad to see ronaldo go this you know while we might have that argued- makes one of us <laughs> Well, while we might have argued before that uh, Messi will be out of this World Cup um, and and you think he'll come back in four years, and I'm not so sure, this is probably the end of Cristiano Ronaldo's World Cup tenure. Um, when we look forward to the 
what will be the 2022 World Cup. Uh, he'll be 30, 37, I, I think, right? Something like that. That sounds right, yeah. And so that's, you know, it's, it's certainly a young man's game. And we saw what happened with Zlatan Ibrahimovic being a guy that, you know, was coming off injury and they said might be too old to uh, play in this World Cup. I don't see a way that Ronaldo plays. Now, he's a guy who takes great you know, care of his body. He's somebody who's committed to the sport, who's committed to honing his craft, all that. And if Portugal doesn't have a new wave of, of young stars, the way that I would argue that Argentina is set up with, with a Dybala or someone similar, if there's nobody to take the torch within the next few years, I don't think Ronaldo goes through World Cup qualification with them all that much. But I do think that if, if they make it in four years, there's an outside chance he does it. But at that point in his career, he'll probably be playing in MLS. And I, I just don't know if he's going to be able to get it up to uh, to go to another World Cup. But it is it is a shame that the two biggest stars in the tournament will not see the quarterfinals. Yes, yeah, maybe FIFA should have ordered a ninth place match between Argentina and Portugal, right? I would have uh, I'd have gone all in on that. It right. would have drawn eyeballs probably more than some of these other matches we're going to talk about. Yeah, sure would have. Spain-Russia. Interesting match. Spain and Russia tie 1-1. Russia ends up winning on PKs 4-3. And this match was bonkers, to say the least. Spain completed, I think it was 935 passes in the 90 minutes of regulation. They ultimately finished with uh, 1,115 passes, a 90% accuracy and had 79% possession in the match. And I don't want to draw the, the direct parallel to what Germany did, but it feels like teams like Spain and Germany tried to go for such high degrees of possession that they didn't leave themselves the ability to, uh, to really get into dangerous situations. And it felt like, in both cases, they allowed themselves to be open up for you know legitimate counterattacks. Russia did a great job. And this, is, this Russian team is one that you and I both... Uh, lamented early on, you know, as we were previewing the World Cup, that Russia didn't necessarily belong in this tournament, and had it not been for them hosting, they wouldn't have been in it. Russia did a great job, and they are absolutely riding their home crowd, especially in the uh, penalty shootout. What are you, uh, any any huge takeaway here? Well, in retrospect, I feel a little bit silly, although I did predict that Spain would have a ton of the ball and ping it around and have control of the match, and after they got the early goal that's what they were doing and then PK just commits this brain dead handball that gives Russia the penalty kick in the first half that, that evens up the match and now it really is game on to use a cliche Spain are still controlling the tempo and, and holding the ball and doing what they want but yeah I feel silly in retrospect because who was I expecting to score all these goals for Spain I mean Diego Costa is a wonderful striker but he's an opportunist more than anything else. He's not a game breaker. He's a, he's a guy who gets in there, mucks it up, does the dirty work, and sweeps something in. I love David Silva, but he was ordinary in this match. He didn't have a great tournament. Isco? Eh, maybe. Now you're starting to talk about guys like Busquets and Asensio, and these are not goal scorers. Like, there's a lot of possession here, but there's no final product, and that's what ended up killing Spain in this match. Yeah, it's... uh. When you look back on, on this World Cup, it has been the World Cup of watching Titans in this game getting taken down. And, you know, while I feel good for Russia and feel great about, you know, I feel good for their fans knowing that this team has, uh, you know, managed to get to a stage that nobody thought was possible. It is a shame to see that, you know, instead of seeing a, uh, a matchup of Croatia 
and Spain were going to be treated now to uh, to Russia, Croatia, which I don't know that that'll leave a bit to be desired. But well, well you mentioned that. the home crowd. I mean, the Russians were obviously heavily motivated to win this match and did everything they had to do. I didn't think the Spaniards seemed that fussed about losing, and that's for me why they're gone. Did you see the tweet? There was a a picture of a Russian player, and it looked like there had been a needle mark on his arm, and then they. Uh, they brought up the distance covered by teams in the World Cup, and it was like Russia by a considerable margin, implying that uh, the Russian national team has been doping, and that's how they've been able to uh, practically fly around the pitch with, with little regard for conditioning. I wouldn't even begin to guess what's going on in Russia with the Russian national team. Uh, I value my life and my family. Uh, I think they're playing very, very well, and that's all I'm willing to say <laughs> on that point. All right. Croatia and Denmark played to a 1-1 draw. Uh, Croatia goes through on penalties 3-2 to two in what ended up being another Real Madrid player coming up small on a penalty kick that could have ended the entire match. Uh, it happened to Ronaldo in match day three. It happened in this match with Luka Modric. Could have put his team over the top. No need for extra time. No need for penalty shootout. Uh, it, it was just, uh, I, I don't know. It was a, a strange kind of situation here where I didn't think Denmark was going to be able to hang with Croatia. And boy, was I wrong. For a, for a Croatian team that has controlled the midfield in practically every match and done it in a dominant fashion, it didn't feel like Modric and Rakitic were able to get nearly as many opportunities set up as they have been in, in previous matches. Well, on top of that, Schmeichel was really good in this match, not just saving the Modric penalty uh, at the end of the second half in extra time, but throughout the match, he was a fulcrum, a, a spiritual touchstone for his teammates and he basically willed them uh, especially with the save on Modric but even throughout the match he basically willed them on and kept Croatia from getting that that second goal that would have made it too uh, tall of a mountain to climb uh, and he was great in the the shootout too but it just turned out Subasic was a little bit better um, and so I think it's the right team going through uh, but I was heartbroken for Denmark. And, uh, you know, again, I didn't go into this match with any real feeling about either Croatia or Denmark. I figure whoever goes through, they'll play and it's fine and they'll probably beat Russia. But by the end of this match, especially through the shootout, I was emotionally invested and, and uh, I felt terrible for Denmark. But, you know, you got to give Croatia credit. They did what they had to do. Yep. Um, as we move on, Brazil exposes Mexico as the frauds they are. And El Tri goes the last 180 minutes plus stoppage with zero goals that spans back to their matchup against was sweden right in match day three yeah when they got rinsed three nil and uh brazil took care of business and in the aftermath of it neymar was asked about um mexico's exit from the tournament remember mexico had been very vocal about the fact that referees seem to be officiating Neymar differently, and they wanted to, you know, draw the attention of officials that Neymar tends to flop and flail and act like he got, you know, pegged by a sniper when all that happened was he got his toe caught in the turf. Anyway, Neymar, after the match, um, to paraphrase here, says, they talked a lot, they talked too much, and now they're going home. Boy, I, I love Neymar for that, and I'm ambivalent about Neymar largely. Uh, sometimes I'm behind him and sometimes I'm not but good for him I mean tell Mexico exactly where they can go which is home this is the class of CONCACAF this Mexico side 
It's like being the president of the worst fraternity on campus. It's an embarrassment. CONCACAF <laughs> should lose an automatic bid based on the performances of Mexico, Costa Rica, and Panama in this tournament. It's a goddamn disgrace, okay? And yes, Mexico did do a lot of talking. When they got those six points early on, and you know the Fox Sports people were puffing their chests up and feeling pretty good, and you had Landon Donovan and Alexi Lalas getting ready to even further uh, chide us for not getting on board. Those were high days. Those were good times. Well, guess what? In their last two matches, they didn't even score. They barely showed up in this Brazil match, and now they're done, and I could not be happier. I could not be happier. Get lost. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty heated from you. I'm not too surprised. Uh, we knew that Brazil was going to win this match. Mexico, I thought it was really cute. You know, when we talk about the headlines, it was cute that, like, the day before they went out to play Brazil, they, uh, Chicharito and, and company decided to bleach their hair. Chicharito. Uh, I, and I thought, I honestly thought that was going to be the ugliest performance that that a Mexican player was going to do in, in those few days. But, uh, nope, they went out on the pitch and they did an even worse job. So, um, you know, kind of to your point about CONCACAF losing an automatic bid, once again, we come back to, you look at what Mexico did, and in the group stage, that, that initial victory over Germany, a German team that I think just was not... Uh, was not prepared. They didn't turn up. Yeah, Germany. they didn't. And I, th- I think they just were never really prepared for a Mexican side that was going to look competent. Uh, Mexico, you know, they, they end up getting six points in the group stage. And and getting through was certainly a success for them. But the way they ended the group stage and the way that they got smacked by Brazil is just kind of indicative of the mess that CONCACAF is. And again, it's not like we think that if the U.S. had been there in place of Mexico, that the U.S. would have gotten out of the group stage. Oh, hell no. And we certainly don't think that the U.S. would have been victorious against Brazil. So, like, let's let's make sure that we get that clear. But Agreed. Um, you know, this this went the way that we thought it was going to. In Brazil, uh, I'm trying to think, is it, Mar- was it Marcelo that got hurt in the last match? There's somebody that, that they might be without in this next match that could be problematic for them. But Brazil still has so much uh, as they, you know, look forward that I think they're going to be fine. Let's uh, get really quickly to the last two matches. Belgium, Japan. Japan goes up 2-0. And one of my friends, uh, Sam, is the biggest jinx in the history of professional sports. And he's, he's like the guy who, uh, when Donovan McNabb broke his, uh, broke his leg, that was his fault. When Terrell Owens broke his leg, I'm pretty sure that was probably his fault. We weren't friends at that point. When Brian Westbrook got hurt in the playoffs, that was his fault. This guy, like, the second he says, see, I told you this was going to happen, the whole thing falls apart. And Japan goes up 2-0, and he texted uh, me and a couple other friends and his brother and said, hey, I told you, I, I shot my shot here with Japan. And I wasn't watching the match at the moment. Uh, I think I was, I was at the, the pool with uh, the kids and the wife. And I get home, and I'm watching the game in its entirety. I'm like, wow, Japan is really controlling play. I can't believe this is happening. And then... One goal goes in, and you know it's over. You just know the second that Belgium nets their first that Japan is screwed. It was the looks on their faces, too. And it was such a shank, fluke goal from Vertonghen. It was probably a pass. It goes in off his head on a really funky angle, but a perfect finish if that's what he was trying to do because the keeper had no chance. And as soon as you saw the looks on the faces of the Japanese players, you knew that it was really and truly on and there was going to be trouble because Belgium at that point gained all this belief that they had no business having and then you saw their talent start to bear. Uh, Marouane Fellaini uh, goes out, and he just he does what he does. Gets his head to a ball, and it's, uh, that's it. It's all over. Uh, and i got to give the, the broadcasters credit, because they called when Fellaini came on. They said, 
The Japanese don't really have the size to deal with Fellaini in the box. If they can just get service to him, he'll score. And within like five minutes, the ball was in the net. Which was fantastic. Like that's that it's exactly how it broke out for them. And Fellaini once again kind of you know, he had just inked a new deal with Manchester United, which made another one of my friends, uh, Christian, who's a, a gigantic Man United supporter. Uh, I think he's he's got a curdled feeling in his stomach, much like watching, uh, you know, a, a Guinness, uh, Jameson, and Bailey's with the car bomb. When yeah. you uh, let it sit for too long and everything curdles and it's disgusting. I have no I idea what you're talking that's about. That's the feeling that I think he was getting in his stomach watching uh, Fellaini get a new extension there at, uh, at United. But well, the hilarious part is, too, Mourinho will watch Fellaini score in the World Cup and then continue to use him as a defensive stopper and only let him head the ball in his own box away yep. from his own goal. Yep, that's, uh, that's a great manager right there. And uh, the way that this match ended with, what was it, like 30-ish seconds left in the match, Courtois, very cool, calm, and collected, rolls the ball out. And it's essentially a fast break counter the other way. And Belgium, two, three passes later, De Bruyne makes an awesome run. Fantastic pass that leads to a Lukaku dummy. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, Chadley burns it. Or, and and bur- he buries it and crushed it. And, you know, that Belgium team was, was absolutely, you know, tearing up the pitch. And with the way that this match ended, it was just utter heartbreak for Japan. And pure elation for Belgium. And well, it's remarkable what killed Japan in the end, a disciplined and uh, organized and smart side. What killed them in the last minute was a horribly stupid play. They have a corner kick, and they drift it way up high, where really only Courtois can get to it, around like 12 yards off his line, and they all switch off. So now if you've watched any replays of this final goal that Belgium scored, when Courtois catches the ball, five or six Japanese players are behind him. And when he rolls when Courtois rolls it out to De Bruyne, he has just literally yards and yards of open space. And you know, it's been suggested one of the Japanese players should have just hacked De Bruyne down, even maybe you know take a red card if you have to, just to keep him from moving. But if you watch the replay, I'm not even sure any of the Japanese players running with him could even get to De Bruyne because he's at top speed. And he's an elite athlete. And some of those guys aren't as good as he is. So as soon as that corner kick floated into Courtois' hands, it was probably better than 50-50 that Belgium were going to score and win. And that's exactly what happened. Yep. Um, Sweden and Switzerland, I don't even want to dignify with analysis. Sweden goes through on a deflected goal. It was a miserable match. It was boring. It was dreadful. And ultimately, if, if we could, I think uh, neither we would have put neither team through. Maybe this is where the Argentina-Portugal ninth-place match could have uh, slotted in and, and been exponentially more interesting. And look, I don't want to be unfair to Sweden. They've had a very good tournament. They've been one of the better, more reliable sides to watch. But that doesn't mean I want to watch them. I mean, look, they do a very workmanlike job. And really, Switzerland was probably the best draw they could have asked for because it's essentially like Sweden and Switzerland are very comparable, except Sweden's like 10% better. <laughs> that's yeah, it's, what it's ended like up happening. Meme. It's like the Spider-Man meme where Spider-Man points pretty to much, Spider-Man. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. And Switzerland's gone, and I'm thrilled to see that because I can't watch another minute of them. Um, and that being said, you know, let's – phase into this england Colombia match, which England work, uh, wins on PKs. But I will say this England-Sweden quarterfinal, I'll totally watch that yeah. because I think England have a lot of speed and talent. And I think Sweden does things that will give England some fits. But but let's move on to England and Colombia because this really was, you know, again, I, I, I've picked uh, Belgium and Brazil as an entry. One of them is going to leave after the quarterfinal. 
But this household I live in is 100% behind England. And watching them exercise many ghosts by winning a penalty kick shootout in the World Cup was thrilling. And the match in its entirety was a lot of fun. But go ahead and hit us with some detail on that. See, the the crazy thing is, so this was the third match in the knockout stage. I believe it was the first time in World Cup history that three matches in the initial knockout stage went to penalties. And England-Columbia was a match that I think was so radically affected by the absence of James Rodriguez, not just stylistically for what Colombia had been as a team, but then for the way that Colombia decided to install a plan where they essentially went UFC on England for most of the match. And Colombia, which has played this aesthetically pleasing style, free form, free running, just beautiful soccer, they mucked up this game to the max. Five yellow cards. And, and it easily... I mean, there, there were moments in this match where I thought the ref had to give out a red just for the sake of trying to get the match back under control. And I know that you don't want to do that as an official, but when you're handing out yellows like candy and it is not affecting the way that Columbia is playing this match, it's clear that the players or their manager have, have no respect for you as the official. And there were so many ugly fouls in this match that I, I was quite frankly shocked that there weren't punches thrown on the field. Here's the point I made to you, though, which I think holds up. So Kane scores a penalty for uh, England in the 57th minute, and now Colombia are faced with the possibility if they don't score in the next half hour or so, they're out of the tournament, okay? And they're continuing to hack, and they're continuing to foul, and they're continuing to play on the border. And you're saying, well, show a red, and maybe that'll stop it. I go the other way if I'm the official in that situation. I just start giving a free kick anytime Colombia breathes on England, because every time you do that, England can take 30 seconds off the clock putting the ball back into play. Maybe that's what you need to do to send the message to Columbia, knock it off. Because if they continue to foul and there's just free kick after free kick after free kick given, Columbia could look up with eight minutes left and there's just nothing left to do. Now the problem is they they ended up scoring uh, in added time at the end of the second half, which was a total switch off uh, from England, although it was a fine header. Um, But that's how I would handle the situation if I'm the referee. I'm not so worried about cards. I'm worried about delivering the message to the team that's trailing that if you think you're going to win this match by beating these people up, you're just going to be standing around waiting for them to put the ball back into play. And more than anything, England was just lucky to escape the game without a major injury to one of their stars. Uh, when we got into this uh, the penalty shootout, I-, I didn't know how to feel about the way that things were setting up because it, it felt like the, you know, and I've, I've mentioned multiple times now that between France and England, they've both had such poor performances in, in recent memory. And with England, I think there's just this immense pressure more so on them than maybe any other team in the world to be successful. And again, like it's not as if England has had a track record of success in recent years. And I always feel like going into World Cups, there's just this unfair, unrealistic expectation set on them to win the whole thing when I can easily pick five or six teams ahead of them that I think are just better. But England goes out and you know, to your point, exercises demons, exercises ghosts, whatever you want to say. And they go out and they win this shootout. And it was a lot closer, I think, than than we might have expected. And, and ultimately, Pickford did a great job in that shootout and, you know, gets his team through. And England is now poised, I think, to go on to the semifinals. And they have played a style of soccer that has been enjoyable to watch but more so than anything it's just good for the game to see England kind of reclaim some past glory as they move forward in this tournament 
There's no question, and obviously, based on the way the draw is, if England gets past Sweden, which I expect them to do, then they're going to play either Belgium or Brazil, and that is going to be must-watch. I mean, I think Brazil-Belgium is one of the best matches in the tournament coming up. Unfortunately, one of those teams has to leave after that round. But a semifinal between England and either Brazil or Belgium is just perfect. I mean, going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's going to be going to be absolutely bonkers. So before we go, let's just take a look real quick at the the matchups as they currently stand for the quarterfinals. We've got to start this whole thing off. Uh, Uruguay and France are going to play Friday morning, 10 a.m. Brazil and Belgium follow at 2 p.m. Then on Saturday, we've got Sweden, England at 10 a.m. Eastern and Russia, Croatia finish the whole thing up at two o'clock. Uruguay, France is a match that should feature plenty of offense. It will be a very different matchup if Cavani does not play. How do you see this one planning at, or playing out? I just think France has too much. I, I, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I, I don't think Uruguay can concentrate on one or two players. I think France is going to have too much of the ball. I think they're going to score early. And, uh, I mean, this, this could be 3-1. I'm having a hard time disagreeing with you. I do think that if this match is close at the end, we do see Cavani to try to force extra time. And I think he comes out as a substitute as the fourth in extra time. And I I think that would hurt them tremendously. It would hurt to not have him in a shootout. But I do think Uruguay has the ability to keep it close. And if they're able to steal an initial goal very early in this match, put France on their heels. France has the talent to obviously make up that that very small deficit. But I hope this game is a lot more competitive than a 3-1 scoreline would dictate. Um... Brazil-Belgium is probably a match that I think a lot of people had hoped would be the World Cup final. Uh, Should be an interesting one. How do you see Brazil and Belgium playing out? Well, first of all, I have to correct myself earlier because I was saying that England would be getting either Brazil or Belgium in the semis. It would be the final, uh, which I think would be a lot of fun. Actually, England's path is is a lot clearer than than I expected, although Croatia is going to be a pain. Going back to Brazil-Belgium, which is, of course, the bottom half of this bracket with Uruguay and France, Look, I, my heart's with Belgium. Uh, as a Man City fan, De Bruyne is one of my favorite players. Vincent Kompany is one of my favorite players. Uh, I'm a big Premier League homer, as you know. And uh, they're loaded with Premier League talent up and down. Brazil has some guys, too. I mean, I've said I don't dislike Gabriel Jesus. Uh, I think Brazil is going to win this match. Uh, but I will be rooting for Belgium because I just I love their style of play. And, you know, that counterattack that they laid on at the end of Japan is the sort of thing I'd wish they'd try to do more of because when they get running and Azard is stampeding up the field and De Bruyne is uh, controlling the middle of the field, they are just such a pleasure to watch. That being said, Brazil is so deep and so talented and so full of of world-class club-level international players. I think it's going to be Brazil. It's probably going to be 2-1. Yeah, I'm starting to think that Brazil's going to pull this one out. Uh, Marcelo has returned back to training, and Douglas Costa as well. And I think having Douglas Costa back is, is going to be massive for them. Belgium has the talent. I don't think there's I, – I don't think picking either side of this is not a game that I would bet. But I think either team, you can make the, the case, in many ways could win. Brazil, I think, is looking to, you know, once again, kind of exercise that 7-1 drubbing they had a few years ago to uh, Germany in, in the last World Cup. And I think they're looking to, you know, solidify themselves and, and kind of make that big, bold proclamation that they are here. And in doing so, it sends shockwaves throughout, you know, the rest of the uh, the tournament. It would certainly send some shockwaves and some fear into the hearts of either Uruguay or France. 
Belgium's hard to pick against, but I think, yeah, Brazil's got to go through and win. Russia, Croatia, aside from there being some kind of a doping scandal or there being some kind of a real fix in, Croatia should win the match. Croatia should dominate the midfield. The only way I see this going sideways is if it, it once again goes to extra time. And then the home the home crowd, I think, is what could end up being a determining factor. But I, I'd pick Croatia in this match 3-1. Look, I maintain that if Piquet doesn't absolutely fall asleep mentally and give up that handball against Russia, Russia was never scoring in open play in that match against Spain. And even as bad as Spain were in that match, they should have gotten through. So for me, I agree. Uh, it's Croatia 3-0 possibly. I, I get, Russia's just not prolific. They don't score a lot of goals, and I don't expect Croatia to get uh, gummed up in this match uh, the way they did against Denmark, because I think Denmark's better than Russia was. Yeah. Is. That's fair. Uh, last match, England-Sweden. This one could end up being an ugly match. I think this one's going to be the worst one to watch. Sweden, I think, is, is going to stylistically try to hone in on taking out one or two of the English players and, and kind of reducing this to a possession battle in the midfield. And I, I don't think that ends in a way that's aesthetically pleasing for either team. England, the way that things have gone, and I have to give Harry Kane a lot of credit, like this probably ends on a Harry Kane penalty in like the 76th minute. That That's kind of where I'm at. Like I think this is going to be a drudge of a game to watch. I think this is going to be get your drinks, get your food ready, just kind of sit back, be on your phone, your tablet, do whatever, and kind of have this game up as background noise and then really start to focus on it around the 70th minute. I, I don't see it being an interesting one. I'm disappointed to agree with you, but I do. And really, when you think about it, if you're Sweden, why wouldn't you play that way? You know England has a lot of emotional and mental baggage that they're carrying even after winning that shootout to get to this point. And you know England has it in the back of their minds that if they win this match, they're going to play either Croatia or Russia in a match that they are at least even money to get through. And now you're looking at possibly an England side in the World Cup final. So all of this is playing on the minds of the English players, and the Swedes know it. So they are going to try to make things very physically difficult, uh, especially when you look at the fact, as you pointed out, you know England just got roughed up in the Columbia match. And you, know, you only get so many days rest between matches. These tournaments will take a physical toll. And... If you're Sweden, why wouldn't you beat England up and try and uh, slow them down and make it a one goal or make it a 1-1 and try to get to penalties and see if England can do it twice in a row, right? Yeah. Uh, it, I, I'm just looking forward to, I think, every match except for this one. Before we go, it is probably the story that has taken over the football world by storm, and that is the rumor now that Cristiano Ronaldo may be making a move to Juventus. And... It would spell the end of his nine-year run at Real Madrid that's seen multiple uh, Champions League wins, including uh, three consecutive, I believe it was four out of five, if I remember correctly. Um, th this is this is one of the biggest stories, and to me, when I initially heard the rumor, I said it shouldn't happen because this isn't a lateral move, this is a step down. I like Juventus. I think Juventus is a good team. They constantly have good players. They won, I think it was the seventh consecutive Scudetto this year. They are certainly going to be a competitor in the Champions League. But to me, there is no incentive to go to Serie A. I, I can't imagine that Manchester United really is that opposed to a, a, a reunion with him. It's been at the forefront of practically every transfer market rumor in the last three years is that United wants him to come back to finish his career. We know that there is interest from Ronaldo to eventually play in MLS. 
and I guess like I, I know that the optics of leaving Real Madrid to go to MLS now would be awful, but the idea that going to Juventus is in any way a comparable thing or is in any way at the same level to me is just ridiculous to say the least. Well, I'm not going to unload on Ronaldo until he actually signs the paperwork and shows up in the Juventus kit. Uh, I agree with you, though, that it's a step down. It's a tacit admission that his body is not up for another La Liga campaign plus Champions League plus all the domestic cups that they play in Spain and that he's looking to downshift a little bit. It's almost comparable to what LeBron James is doing, if you want to get right down to it, because the Lakers aren't going to be competitive next year, and they probably won't be competitive the year after. And on top of that, the Warriors look like, the Golden State Warriors look like they're going to win the next two or three league championships on the trot unless three guys get hurt um, or just decide to stop playing. So it's comparable. I think Ronaldo is at this point suggesting that, look, I've done all this already, and I realize that I've lost a step. And I know that I can go for Juventus and still be prolific. And I probably can't do it at Real Madrid anymore. Plus, look, Real Madrid haven't been shy. Uh, They've been making noise about Mbappe. They've been making noise about other stars. Um, It's at some level a face-saving deal for Ronaldo to get out of there before they push him out. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to – I just think the optics of it are bad. That ends all of the Clasico matches between he and Messi. I I just – it's a shame. Like, we know that eventually these guys are going to start to wear it down. And I think you're right. Like, to some extent, it makes sense for him to go to a slower league like Serie A. Um, The most recent update uh, was from Fabrizio Romano, who is a reporter for Sky Sport and The Guardian. He covers the Italian transfer rumor market. And he said that um, – the whole thing, the whole holdup is Real Madrid's president, Florentino Perez, has still not decided that he wants to sell Ronaldo. He's claiming that Ronaldo has already expressed to Perez that he wants to leave Real and he'd like to join Juventus. Uh, at the same time, Gonzalo Higuain's brother and agent has told Sky Sport that they are not in talks with Chelsea and that out of respect for his contract with Juventus, he would love to see, and I guess Gonzalo Higuain would love to see himself playing uh, alongside Cristiano Ronaldo. So here we are. He's out of the World Cup, but he's stealing headlines away from the tournament. So I'm sure that's going to just add a little bit of fuel to your uh, anti-Ronaldo fire. Well, and it's not like Real Madrid to do anything like poach the Spanish national team manager the day before the tournament begins and screw Spain's campaign. I mean, that's so unlike Real Madrid. It's so unlike Ronaldo. The whole thing is shocking. Yep. All right. Well, uh, that is it for this episode of Crossing Broad FC. Thanks again, as always, for listening. Go check out the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, including Crossing Broadcast on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, uh, Snow the Goalie on Thursdays, um, Crossed Up on Tuesdays. That's the Phillies podcast. And then go check out our sister soccer podcast, It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia, with Kevin Kincaid and Dave Zeitlin recapping all Philadelphia Union news and notes. And as always, go on to uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and we will read it on the next show. Until the uh, quarterfinals are over, I'm Russ. That's Phil. Follow us on Twitter at JoyOnBroad, at Phil Kaidel, K-E-I-D-E-L. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel. Phil, talk to you soon. Thanks, man.